You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, as I'm about to do, we are hearing God speak to us. I'm going to be bringing our Bible readings from 1 Samuel today. We've got quite a large passage to get through, starting with 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, and we'll be reading all the way to the end of chapter 22. I'll be reading from the CSB version today. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favour with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this, or else he will be grieved. David also swore, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, Look, tomorrow is the new moon, and I am supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go, and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says, good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant, For you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable toward you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you, just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is a new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. 
The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this instant began, and stay beside the rock easel. I will shoot three arrows beside it, as if I'm aiming at a target. Then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no problem. But if I say this to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his place beside Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought, something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He is unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now, if I have found favour with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back, Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table, fiercely angry, and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behaviour toward David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, Run and find the arrows I'm shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, The arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, Hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, Go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone easel fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, The Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. David went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David, so he said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? 
David answered the priest Ahimelech, The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I am sending you on, or what I have ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men at a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. The priest told him, There is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us, as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission, so of course their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. One of Saul's servants, detained before the Lord, was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or sword on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or my weapons, since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there isn't another one here. There's none like it, David said. Give it to me. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servants said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpeh of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. 
Then Doeg the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. The king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, Listen, son of Ahitub, I'm at your service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, Why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech replied to the king, Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honoured in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please, don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all this. But the king said, You will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guard standing by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they have sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, Go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword. Both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid, for the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. You know, 1 Samuel 20 that we looked at just there, it is actually one of the classic passages on friendship in the whole Bible. It's where so many people turn to see a picture of friendship at its finest. But, but I actually want to say that if we really understand what this chapter says about true friendship... We, we might not actually like it. Because this vision of friendship turns all our expectations upside down. It undermines everything that our world and our culture values. But I love it. And can I say that if you're struggling to find true friendship, I'm sure you're going to love this as well. We're going to see this picture of true friendship in the stories of three different people. Three people, Jonathan, David, and Saul, a loving friend, a rejected heir, and a wicked king. You know, some years ago, uh, Peter Adam, who was here a few weeks ago, he said to me, that's about eight years ago, he said to me, uh, Adam, I have 10 friends who I can call at any time of the day and share exactly how I feel. I thought to myself, 10? Gosh, Peter, you need to get more friends. 
I mean, like, Izzy's friends with almost 2,000 people on Instagram. Gary's been friends with half of Melbourne since I've known him in high school. But as the years went on, I realised, though, how remarkable it is that anyone would actually have even 10 friends like that. Friends who I can call at any time of the day about absolutely anything. I think I have about three to five, and I count myself remarkably blessed for that. Friends, that's the sort of friend that Jonathan is to David here. Back in chapter 18, what we read that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Isn't that beautiful? To have a friend like that, a friend whose heart is bound to ours. Proverbs 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. A time just like this. Well, look, in chapter 20, David is confronted with a life-threatening crisis. Do you you remember what's happened over the last few chapters? God anointed David as king. David killed Goliath and the crowds were singing his praises over Saul. And unsurprisingly, what happens? Saul gets a little jealous, right? So what do you do when you're jealous? He tried to kill David. Not once, not twice, not thrice, which is a real word, but four times. Firstly, he throws a spear at David and praise God, he's got bad accuracy, he missed. Then he offered his daughter, to, uh, his daughter Michal as a wife to bait David to fight on the front lines, hoping that he'd be killed in action. Great father. Uh, but David won the battle. And he won the bride. Saul's furious again. He throws another spear. Misses again. Praise God for that. And finally, he then hired hitmen to knock off David in the dead of night. I love this because they they go there, right? And David and Michal come up with that plan that you often see in movies where they stuff a bed full of pillows and a hitman comes and, you know, pumps it three times with a silencer thinking that it's a real person. Not really. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, though, right? We always see this, as it were, from David's perspective. But imagine being Jonathan. Imagine just how, gosh, awkward that must be. Because Saul's your dad. And your dad is trying to kill your closest friend. Many of you will know that uh, Noon has been, I've known Noon since he was um, in high school before he was a Christian. He's known my dad for 17 years. That's half my life. Um, they have this weird thing at Christmas where they give each other bottles of wine. I'm still not quite sure why. Uh, and you want to imagine for a moment being in my position, right? Noon comes by my house. He sees my dad. And I'll say, all right. And my dad then throws a spear at him, right? It's, it's, it's a bit awkward being stuck between your family and your friend. David says in verse 3, there is but a step between me and death. So in the face of this life-threatening crisis, what do they do? David and Jonathan, they come up with a high-stakes plan. So there's a feast, right, at the start of every month, and David's supposed to be there eating with Saul. But here's what he'll do. Instead of going to the feast, no, he'll hide in the countryside for two days. And if Saul notices that David isn't there and he asks, hey, where's David? Jonathan should just say, ah, well, he has a prior family engagement. Isn't that how we get out of everything, right? Prior family engagement, throw them under the bus, right? And if Saul says, all good, it's all clear. David is safe to come home. But if Saul gets angry, Jonathan will know his dad is not returning and his friend's life is at risk. 
And the way that Jonathan will let David know the outcome of their plan is by shooting three arrows into the field where David's hiding. And if Jonathan shoots these arrows on the near side of the rock, then the coast is clear. David can come home. But if he shoots these arrows on the far side of the rock, that's a sign that David, run for your life. There's the plan. And verses 25 to 40, we see how it all plays out, right? So we see it goes all according to plan. Start of the month. Feast is on, Jonathan's there, David's not. And Saul thinks that David's richly unclean from fighting in battle, which is why he's away. And they're like, this is great, things are looking good. But the next day, when David's still not there, Saul asks Jonathan, where's David? And right on cue, Jonathan's got the plan. Oh, well, uh, you know, he's, he's got a prior family engagement. And Saul loses it. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you're siding with Jesse's son, can't even say his name, Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother. Every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingdom are not secure. Now send for him. Bring him to me. He must die. And just imagine for a moment how Jonathan must feel. Your dad is hell-bent on killing your friend. He's so consumed by jealousy that now he doesn't throw a spear at David. He throws a spear at you, his own son, convinced in paranoia that you've betrayed him. So Jonathan leaves in anger. He shoots three arrows on the far side of the field. And this chapter ends with him saying goodbye to his closest friend through tears, never to see him again. Friends, I wonder if you noticed that beneath this life-threatening crisis and beneath this high-stakes plan is a deeply loving friend. I wonder if you notice how, how Jonathan binds his future with David's. In verses 8 and 17, he makes a covenant, a, a commitment of love and allegiance. But it's not just between them in verse 42. It's a covenant between their families, their offspring forever. But do you realize that Jonathan loves David even more than his own family? He defies his father. To protect his friend. You can hear what Saul is saying in verses 30 to 31, right? How could you choose your friend instead of us? Look at the shame you'll bring on your own mother. How could you side with Jesse's son, someone from another family over your own flesh and blood? But Jonathan loves his friend more than his family in this moment. It makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But I want you to notice even more, he doesn't just love David as his friend, he loves David as his king. In verse 13, he acknowledges that the Lord is with David just as he was with my father. You see, Jonathan knows that God has abandoned Saul and anointed David. In verses 15 and 16, he declares, the Lord will cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He's saying, David, your throne will rule forever. But look at it, verse 31, that's got to be the most countercultural thing there. Jonathan gives up his right to the throne 
and he gives his crown to his closest friend. What does Saul say? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. But Jonathan doesn't care. He takes his crown and casts it at David's feet. Friends, you see what Jonathan shows us? He shows us not only what it means to be a friend, though he does that. He shows us what it means to be a friend of the king. What it means to be a friend of God. You see, friends, to be a friend of God, is, is to commit our lives to him, to love him more than our own family, and to cast our crown at his feet. The camera now shifts from Jonathan to David, the, the loving friend now to the rejected heir. I don't know about you, but I've often thought that school, the schoolyard, is like a social microcosm of natural selection at work. Right? It doesn't matter our, our culture or our country or what period of history you might live in. The unbending rule of schoolyard social science is this. The strong survive and the weak die. It's a miracle that I'm standing here today. There's always that one kid right, who everyone wants to be friends with. When I was in primary school, it was the school captain with the limited edition Pokemon cards. I know some of you still have them. It's okay, right? And there's always that other kid though, isn't there? The one who no one wants to be friends with. The one who's pushed around, bullied, who runs and hides. Now, now, you might think that as God's king, David will clearly be the first sort of king, right? The popular one who everyone wants to follow and everyone want, would want to be friends with. But actually, in chapter 21, David's much more like the loser who runs from corner to corner of the schoolyard hoping to escape his bullies. In verses 1 to 9, David runs to Nob, a city of priests who serve the Lord and intercede for his people. And he runs there because he needs two things, right? He needs provision and protection. He's starving. He has nothing to eat. And the only food available is the bread that's offered to God and the priests. But the priest Ahimelech offers him that bread. And even more than that, he gives him the sword of Goliath. That's cool, isn't it, right? Ahimelech gives David provision and protection because this king is needy. But he can't stay long in Nob, right? Because otherwise Saul will find him there. So in verses 10 to 15, he runs, he flees to Gath. But very quickly, he realized that he's, gosh, he's come to the wrong place. Because here, he's at risk of being noticed and killed. Verse 12 says that David became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. Now, now, this might seem like a great strategy on one level, like to pretend to be a madman instead of the king. But it's actually pretty pathetic, isn't it? I mean, he is the heir to the throne, acting like a freak in a fruit loop because he's being hunted by Saul and the king of Gath. Okay, so the king's needy, but this is embarrassing, man. Who would want to be friends with a king like that? He, he continues to flee. In chapter 22, he flees from the palace of Jerusalem to the temple of Nob, to the city of Gath, and now where we find him? In a dark and dank cave. And I want you to notice who comes to meet this rejected heir. Verse 2, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. If I were planting a church, that would not be my launch team. Who became friends of this rejected heir? 400 rejects of the world. A needy king for a needy people. 
an embarrassing king for an embarrassing people, a rejected king for a rejected people. And then, if you thought you couldn't go any lower, in verses 3 to 5, David runs to Moab, Israel's sworn enemy. And he asks them, no, 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 he begs them, please look after my parents. I mean, David's out of options, right? David's out of friends. He is so desperate that he turns to the last people you'd ever imagine. I find this chapter actually really profoundly sad. Back in chapter 20, David was loved by his closest friend. And you sort of go, man, if I had a friend like like, like Jonathan, I wouldn't need any other friend. But now in 21, he loses Jonathan. He loses Michal, his wife. He loses absolutely everything. And you go, why, why would you want to be a friends, with friends with a king like that? Why would, you, why would you come and see someone who's needy, embarrassing, rejected and desperate and go, oh, you know, let's, let, let's get along and I'll pledge my love and faithfulness to you? If you saw David on the outside, this isn't the person you'd want to befriend. And yet we do that, don't we? We go to uni. You go to school, you go to work, you come to church, you scan the room looking for someone who's normal, put together, not an embarrassment. You go, aha, you, you, you're you, going to be my friend. You don't say that, that's weird. But you, you make that decision in your head, don't you? But remember chapter 16, verse 7. Humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And friends, if, if only you could see David's heart. If only you could see beyond his neediness, beyond his embarrassment, beyond his rejection, beyond his desperation, then can I say, if you really saw this king for who he is, you would gladly count yourself among those 400 fools just to be his friend. Because that's what true friendship says, doesn't it? I don't care what other people think. Because I have you. But it's not what Saul said. You see, if Jonathan is this picture of being friends with the king, then Saul is this picture of being a foe of the king, against him, rejecting him. Just look at Saul's position. He is sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place, in a position of power where kings ruled and reigned. That, that sandpit, that tree, that, that table, that spot where the popular kids terrorized me at school. Saul has the position. And he also has the power. Verse 6 says his spear was in his hand. It's actually a pretty sad picture when you think about it, though, isn't it? Because Saul might have a spear in his hand, but he does not have the spirit in his heart. He's clutching at power, grasping for control. You see, on the outside, Saul has the position, the power, and even the people. Notice all the servants standing around him like, Crab and Goyle around Malfoy, or the plastics around Regina George, right? They're all there. But for his position, his power, and his people, Saul is plagued by paranoia. Did you notice the people around Saul are actually his family? Verse 7 says they're the men of Benjamin. They're his own tribe, right? And look at what he tells his family. You can imagine this, right? Family gathering, extended family all there. Crazy uncle kind of going off. Is Jesse's son going to give you all fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? You, you can hear what he's saying, can't you, right? Like, 
hey, David's not your family. Don't think he'll look after you. He's Jesse's son. He's not your brother. When I go back to Malaysia, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase that they use, right? It's called kakilangra. It's our own people. Our own people. And that's what Saul's saying. You're not, he's not, he's not kakilangra. He's not our own people. You know, one person has said this quote. I love this quote that I found online, right? Friends are not as important as family. Do not confuse the loyalty of friendship with the bond of blood. It's pretty much what Saul is saying, right? You might agree with him. But can you guess who said it? The mafia, right? And that's what it's like, right? Like, Saul is so paranoid that he's convinced his whole family are conspiring against him. He values his family throne over God's anointed king. And he looks around at his family and says, hey, it's us versus the world. Why would you choose an outside friend over an inside family? And that paranoia leads Saul to a wicked purge. Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief servant, happened to be at Nob when Ahimelech helped David. And now... He tells Saul, hey, you know what, Saul, Ahimelech the priest, he gave David provision and protection. He even inquired of God for him. He's on David's side. You know what? All the priests are on David's side. Your family is against you. Your son is against you. The priests are against you. Everyone's against you. So Saul summons Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob, And he kills them all. Men and women infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. What a wicked act. What remarkable evil. What unspeakable sin. You see, friends, if Jonathan showed us what it looks like to be a friend of God, Saul shows us what it looks like to be his enemy. Jonathan committed his whole life to David. He loved him more than his own family, and he cast his crown at his feet. But look at Saul. No, he committed his whole life to himself. He loved his family throne more than God's anointed king. And he did whatever it took to cling to his own crown. You see, we pause then. I wonder if you realize, right, this, this, this is supposed to be one of the Bible's classic passages on friendship. But I wonder if you can see just how radical its vision is. Because firstly, friendship here actually challenges the exclusive family. Now let me be clear, the Bible esteems, values, lifts up family as a place within which marriage is formed and children are raised. That's a good thing. We want to honour that well. But as important as it is, family is not everything. In fact, it's not even the most important set of relationships in life. Can I, can I just say, you, you understand that coming from my cultural background, this is quite significant to say. In the ancient Near East, it was significant as well. Our world will say family is ultimate. Flesh and blood are the ties that bind. Blood is thicker than water. 
That's what Saul said. But just like Jonathan's friendship with David, friendship throughout the Bible is actually constantly challenging that exclusive insular family. Proverbs 18.24 says, One with many friends may be harmed, but get this, there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. Did you, did you get that? There is a friend whose love is stronger than flesh or blood. And be clear, the love within family is precious and should be honoured and esteemed by all, but it's no greater than the love between friends in the Scriptures. Throughout the Bible, friendship and family are two equally necessary loves, both serving their own purpose. And one of the distinctions is you can't choose your family, you have to choose your friends. I told a friend recently that our friendship means that every day when we wake up, we have to make another commitment to still be there. <laughs> friendship defies the bonds of flesh and blood and forges deep bonds not by compulsion but by commitment. David and Jonathan did not share the same flesh, but they made a covenant with each other that was stronger than blood. It's, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, right? Our friendships are so thin. They're so anemic, so fickle. We say, yes, family is for commitment, but friendships are for convenience. And as soon as there's any conflict, I'm out. I don't need that negative influence or toxicity in my life. Can you see that God has a much richer vision of friendship? A relationship marked by commitment, by sacrifice, by love. If only we strive for friendships like that. What if we pursue deep committed friendships as much as we invest in deep committed family? What if we loved our friends something of a picture of how Jonathan loved David? Many of us struggle to make friends, don't we? We see ourselves as unloving or unlovable or undeserving. And, and we, we, we look around and we see people who have friends, or at least on Facebook or Instagram who seem to have friends and they're happy. And we go, oh, gosh, I just hate them, right? Like, uh... and, and we can't help but feel like one of the 400 rejects who followed David. And the great reaction, the great temptation in that moment is we either isolate ourselves and go, you know what? They want to reject. I reject them. I don't need them. Like one auntie at my church says, I don't do friends, right? Or we rage against the rejection and we muscle our way into friendships and seek to control them only to never feel more alone. And the answer that God gives here is, when will we realize that Jesus is the friend of sinners like us? I mean, the Pharisees called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's supposed to be an insult. Jesus wears that as a badge of honor. But just like David, Jesus was rejected by his friends also that he could become our closest friend. We often describe the gospel as Jesus coming for his bride. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. But the Apostle John says that the gospel is also Jesus dying for his friends. Have you just read the Bible slowly? right? John 15, 13. No one has greater love than this. There's a superlative love, right? Or a super superlative love. To lay down his life, not for his father, 
not for his mother, not for his brother, not for his sister, not for his wife, not for her husband, not for their children. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And you think, really? That's the vision? <laughs> you are his friends. If you do what he commands you. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, can you hear what Jesus is saying to all of us this day? I love you more than any spouse, sibling, or parent, and I proved it when I laid down my life for you. There is no greater love than to be a friend of Jesus. And if you're a friend of Jesus, it's okay. You actually don't need the love of a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter, a father or mother, good though they are. You may never be married, never have children. But all the love you will ever need is with Jesus as your closest friend. And I say, for all that I've said about 1 Samuel 20 and friendship, this passage actually isn't a picture of friendship with just anyone. It's a picture of our friendship with God. Because Jonathan didn't just love David as a friend. He loved David as his king. So, does that make sense? You see, here's the reality. If we take 1 Samuel 20 and go, oh, beautiful friendship between Jonathan and David, then we look to our human friends first and go, you need to be that for me. We're going to crush our friends with a weight of expectation that only the king can bear. No one can be the friend to us that David was to Jonathan, not our husband or our wife, our mother or our father, our son or our daughter, or even our best mate. Only Jesus. That's why in Luke 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, Jesus calls us to love him as our friend more than we love our family. And can I say, if we expect our spouse to be our closest friend, we will crush him with the expectation to be our king, our saviour, and our God. Only Jesus is our king, and only he can be our closest friend. If we look to our family, our church, or anything else for belonging and love, we will never be fully satisfied. But do you see, if Jesus is our closest friend, we can be a true friend to others because we will not expect of them what only Jesus can truly give. For he alone is our true king and our closest friend. So fellow Christian, let me ask, is he? Is Jesus your closest friend? Are you friends of the king? Is he closer to you than even your own family? Do you love him more than father or mother, brother or sister, husband or wife? Would you sacrifice the love of others for the love of this king? Would you pledge your love and commitment to him like Jonathan pledged his to David? Would you be willing to count yourself among the 400 rejected fools of this world so that you might be considered a friend of Jesus? 
Can I say, I, it is not lost on me, the irony somewhat, of, of this text falling on Mother's Day, and it's kind of awkward, right? So I'm just kind of put that out there, right? Um, can I make this one observation? Actually, if we take Jesus' words seriously in Luke 14, where he says, you shouldn't love your parents more than you love me, that's actually the best way you love your parents? Does that make sense? If, you, if we take Jesus seriously in Luke 14, where he says, you shouldn't love your parents more than you love me, that's a good thing out of love for your parents, because it means you're not treating your parents as God. You are loving them and loving them rightly. And you are loving them under God, your heavenly Father. So notwithstanding the language of hate as hyperbole in Luke 14, can you actually see that that is an expression of love? Who is your closest friend? Danny Trewick, who came uh, to speak to us on singleness, she goes, I don't believe in best friends. (laughs) And I think she's right. I think she's right. There's only one person who can be that for us. Friends, we need to make sure we are not like Saul, who rejected the king, who committed his whole life to himself, who loved his family throne more than his God's anointed king, who did anything and everything to cling to his own crown. And can I say, friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're exploring Christianity, figuring out who Jesus is, our world is an awfully lonely place. And there is the offer of friendship with Jesus, friendship with the King, the one person who will never let you down. Will you see that he laid down his life for you so that he might become your closest friend? So will you accept his love for you? And will you pledge your love for him? Can I pray? Dear Lord Jesus, you wear as a badge of honour that title, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We can be friends with God. How amazing it is to think that we, radically corrupt sinners like us, can be friends with a king like you. And yet you showed your love for us through this that you laid down your life for us. May we look to you, our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be the truest and closest friend. And out of that deep love and confidence, that covenant of love, may we then be friends of others, extending to them the love that only you can give. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.